Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. In this talk, Joe Huddleston tells us about the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Part A. My uh, friends of over 40 years sitting here will wonder why on earth I've chosen this topic. It's got nothing to do with my work experience or my life experience. It's just something I've had to swat up. So it's not in my brain, it's in my notes. Remember that when we get to question time. Uh, So why did I bother? Well, um, when I'd done a couple of psychology degrees, decided I wanted to join the civil service and do personnel, I chose the Monastery of Defiance. More fun. It's still owned MI5 and MI6. It talked to the Foreign Office regularly. It talked to America, Canada. And it had big boys' toys that you could make very expensive mistakes with. And as a 22-year-old, it's just irresistible. So I joined. And my first job was in a marvellous building, a war office building in Whitehall, straight up as it half guards parade. Beautiful neo-baroque 1906, cost over a million quid, Portland stone, electric lifts, electric lights from the start. Beautiful thing. Uh, I was doing something really tedious, like making sure that all the military attaches and all the cultural attaches in, from everywhere for everywhere knew that local overseas allowance had just been increased. <laughs> so if you, were, if, you were help, you know, if you were a clerk helping the King of Jordan's military attache, you didn't get very much. If you were a, a spy family living in a shop in Dresden, you got quite a bit. If you were in Washington, you got shed loads of extra money per day just to be there. That was a boring job. But I was walking up to do this. I was walking on, I remember it vividly, I was walking on the second floor, sorry, the first floor, uh, which is the director's floor. The first floor is to contain assassins with bombs, and the first floor is to look after the important persons, like the director of military intelligence, director of military operations, and the chief of the Imperial General Staff, and all those persons. They were redoing one of the lobbies. There's a lobby at every corner, so that people like me could get hold of a peasant and say, go to Whitehall and tell them there's an uprising in Bekuan land, what they're going to do about it. And this particular lobby they were doing over, and people were looking at all the, all the initials and the crude drawings, and there's one graffito stuck with me for life. It said, Archduke recovered, World War I a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I did what you've just done, you know, in the early 20s, I got bored like a child and was taken apart by assorted serious persons wearing plus fours and looking deeply serious, saying, my boy, that cost many millions of lives and did And it left me with sort of an injury, you know, how trivial that war was, how sort of knife-edge, how unbelievably expensive and utterly pointless. So that's why I decided to sort it one day when I got the time together. I really want to cover 1867, when the Austro-Hungarian Empire was formally formed, up to 1914, when it was clear that it was in a terminal state of collapse and was never going to do anything further. But I have to go back a little earlier. 1278 in Switzerland, there was a place called the Castle of the Hawks, Habichtsburg, and that sees the start of the Habsburg dynasty. Went on to impose 600 years of good old medieval rule. You did what you were told, and nobody asked you how you wished to live. That's pretty fair. In 1806, the Roman Empire came to an end, and Austria was still in place. 1815, Congress of Vienna sort out the post napoleonic mess. Austria was still confirmed as a country, still in place. 
1839, Austria was recognized as a serious power, and it allowed the Hungarians to have Magyar as their official language. It's one of the few uh, light spots of enlightenment in this doomed story. If you look at your map, if we start by looking at the map, it will give you an impression of what this talk's going to be about. All those assorted persons <laughs> look thinking about self-rule, thinking about language and culture and education values and so on, lumped together under really elderly medieval form of rule. And you can see that from the beginning this is going to be trouble. A is the, the Austrian bit that was ruled from V, Vienna. And H is the Hungarian bit that was ruled from B, Budapest. Except, of course, the Empress family in Vienna overruled everything and everybody. And Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is where Sarajevo lives, Sarajevo of uh, evil memory, that was tossed around by the greater powers as if it were just a piece on the graphs board. You know, some days you owned it and some days you didn't. So that's the map. Uh, and that, that's, the, that's the basic theme. If I drop dead in the streets, you know what the rest of the talk's going to be about. It's going to be about those people saying, don't like you, Mr. Kaiser. Kindly go away and let me teach my children my own language. My, uh, my map is more interesting than yours. I've got a picture of that well-known social reformer, an advanced revolutionary thinker, Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> sure. sure you recognise him. Um, I'm not lumbering with slides today because you can all find pictures of Vienna. You can all find pictures of Budapest. There are millions of pictures of Franz Joseph and his two pathetic sons all over the place. So I don't have to keep you in darkness. Now, 1848, uh, start of serious revolutionary movements all across Europe. Um, talking of democracy, self-determination, why should lines on a map be drawn? Why should a government settle in the middle of that line and order me around? That's still a good question today. Uh, it hasn't gone away, it never does. Only this month, the Serbs and the Kosovans did a land swap to make the lie of people on the ground more rational. But you still find it very difficult. If you think of English speakers, Welsh speakers, Gaelic speakers, Earth speakers, and you think you can draw a totally porous map around them, you can see the problem you face. There is no solution to this. It's just what is calm and what is agreeable this week. There's no theoretical answer. Uh, I think if you worked hard at it, the north of Farnham has got clay soil, which grows certain things. The south of Farnham has got sandy soil, which grows other things. With a few months' work, you could get some teenage boys taking the heads off garden gnomes and stealing tulip bobs. It doesn't take a lot to get uh, the blue corner and red corner to dislike each other. So there's no fine grain, which is a theoretical solution to the question, when is a line on the ground proper, and when is a government sitting in the middle of it the only decent thing to do? It is not answerable. It applies to the EU as well. Hope to get away without mentioning that. There we go. So, Hungary now declares a war of independence, and the emperor makes himself beautifully popular uh, by shooting ten of the Hungarian leaders. And they never forget, the Hungarians never forget that Russia helped Austria win that one. 1866, and uh, the emperor makes war with Prussia. That's about the daftest thing you can do. That's about taking on America at arm wrestling. 
Prussia has got a fanatically militaristic, dead-keen ruler. It's got the best drilled army on the planet. It's got the fastest shooting rifle anybody invented anywhere by this time. And Austria takes it on over Schleswig-Holstein and loses massively and get kicked out of the German Union, which is just forming, and again never really recovers from that, I don't think, as far as I can see. Um, the incoming foreign minister of Austria-Hungary, um, Baron Beust, it's always a baron or a, a count in Austria-Hungary, it's never a mister or a doctor or a missus. Um, he, he was described by a top Viennese paper as taking over a defeated empire in a state of material exhaustion and neglect and lacking all influence or prestige abroad. So you're the brand new foreign minister of a brand new country and that's the sort of reputation you get from your own capital's best newspaper. Not a great start. Not even Theresa May has got that sort of problem. Perhaps a monarchy no longer had any influence in Germany at all. It had to sit back for years before it could make friends with Germany again. Hungarian parliament was opened... The Hungarians had more democratic experience than the Austrians did. They had a better set of MPs, a better doctrine, and they altogether made a bit of fist of it. They had greater experience of preventing nationalities getting at each other's throats as well. 1867, we've got Austria-Hungary on its own. Lost, left the German world. Franz Josef realised that to remain a great power, um, he had to come to terms with people, especially to the East, particularly the Hungarians, who'd always been clever and troublesome, and uh, not just troublesome, but they were, they were bright, inventive people with, as I say, some considerable experience of democratic government, which uh, Vienna lacked. So he made a new compromise agreement, which has got a fancy title in German, granting Hungary much autonomy, and then Franz Josef, in exchange, was crowned the King of Hungary. It's a neat little trick if you can do it. Ah, here's the complicated bit. Austria and Hungary agreed joint administration for military and foreign affairs, except that they each looked after military recruitment and military expenditure, so military supplies, so there's lots of room for hassle there. And they agreed finance, except the central treasury, which was in Vienna, a bit of a problem. And they agreed customs controls in common. Otherwise, Vienna ran all those bits I've shown you on the map, top left, and Budapest run all those bits on the map in the blue circle, bottom right. And just to complicate matters further, there were three central ministries, foreign affairs, defence and finance, each reporting to a de delegation which met alternately in Vienna or Budapest, a bit like the EU moves around from three places, which was the price of getting the French to join, if you remember. Separate prime ministers, which sounds a good idea, except that the... Uh, Emperor Franz Joseph appointed them. So you can see that doesn't feel free and fair. That feels imposed, described any way you like. That doesn't feel like democracy. He also fixed their entire cabinets, both governments. And the Emperor's decrees always weighed more than the parliamentary proceedings did. A bit like today's Jordan. Jordan, to an outside observer, has got a parliament which talks about everything and reaches decisions. But the King of Jordan opens the door and says, excuse me, I don't like that. Uh, we're, not, we're not having that one. Thank you for working hard. Drop it. That, that's how um, Austria-Hungary was run. It was the Habsburg dynasty, 
and nobody was ever allowed to forget it when it came to administrative and government affairs. The Constitution allowed people to settle wherever they chose, but folks like to be where they are. You can see Poles, Ukrainians, Hungarians, all sorts of people. I've, I've mentioned, there's only one group gets a mention twice, that's the Ruthenians. I've put them in the top right of the Austrian orange bit for you. Ruthenians are Kievan Rus. They still live there. They've got their own language. They're, they're content as far as one can tell. Uh, they were very badly treated by Hungary, but they're the only ones I've specified on the map. All, all the others will either flash past or expect you know where, expect you know where Poles and Czechs live, the Serbs. So from the start, the Czechs and the Poles just absolutely refused to sit in the Parliament of Vienna. That's like the Welsh and the Scots not turning up to Whitehall. You just wonder, you know, what is the point? What is the point of this? And there was a... 1867, someone took a census. Austria had 57% of the population and 70% of the budget and over 60% of the wealth. There were 24% of Germans, 22% of Magyar, 16% Czech-Slovak, and then there were... Croats, Italians, Poles, Serbs, Slovaks, Slovenes, Romanians, Ruthenians, Ukrainians, and lots of others, lots of little diddly bits I, I hadn't the time to mention. So, over 50% of the population is neither German nor Hungarian. So even if Vienna were doing a superb job for the Germans, and Budapest were doing a superb job for the Hungarians, together they don't represent 50% of the population. It's like being full of... Uh, you know, Irishmen and French and Italians and Swiss turning up and saying, oh, you love London, run us, would you? It's not going to happen. And you can see it's, it's never going to be a good fit. There was a law to preserve ethnic rights, for what it was worth, except German was the conventional language. So, surprise, surprise, you had to understand German. It didn't matter where you were born, what your family was called, what your surname was where you went to school, you had to understand. You had to have German as a working language. There was, there was no escape. It's like Dublin telling us all to speak Erse, you know, with, with a majority population being told what to do by a minority population. It's only 24% of Germans, and they've just lost Germany. They've just lost their main ally, and they're telling me to use their language. I mean, honestly. Uh, Inside Austria, though, the Germans were the only ones with any history of government at all. They did know something about it. Uh, they had the most civil servants to spread around inside the Austrian bit. And they had the uh, greatest overall political influence. And they were the most disliked. And the other thing you have to remember is when the, these two countries came together under the Habsburgs, there'd been a thousand years of the Germans and the Slavs hating each other with a passion on which you could make toast. All the Slav nations thought Germans were garbage and vice versa. It doesn't matter about the objective uh, facts, it's just is the feeling. That's how they lived, that's how they thought. Slavs revolting against Turkish rule is a, is a main theme of, of, the, of the Czech. Turkey's falling apart, remember, the Ottoman Empire is, is crumbling <coughs> as fast as it knows how. And up in the north, between the European bits and the Baltic bits, what they're leaving behind is a load of Slavs with different, different labels to their nationality. But they're basically Slavs and they're thinking about independence because after the 1848 revolution, everybody's thinking about self-determination and nationality. Slavs are no, no slower, no thicker than anybody else. 
and they're looking at Turkey as useless, and uh, Austro-Hungary is just about as bad, wondering where to go. Serbs in particular, very forceful people, quite a large area, you look at it on your map, it's a good, good size of land, they've been there for a long time, they know who they are, they know what they want to do, they're going to be pretty troublesome. Well, there was a bit of good news, religious edict finally uh, removed the authority of, of the Pope, so as far as Austria-Hungary was concerned, this really was the end of the unholy on Roman non-empire. Schools in Hungary and Austria now ran themselves uh, using local laity. Uh, they weren't allowed to teach in their own languages. They didn't have their own language textbooks. I'll refer to that from time to time. But at least they were under Austro-Hungarian control. They weren't doing what the Vatican said they should do in terms of approach to the material or the subject matter coming. So general teachers and a number of clergy. And marriages became a, um, a matter of civil law. Marriage was taken quite outside of church control and became a matter of civil law. That's pretty advanced for uh, 1860s. Well, we weren't there yet. Uh, we still aren't in a sense. For about the next 10 years, I mentioned the date when it comes to me. I've done this in chronological order because I couldn't think of it any other way. You can't do it thematically because the themes all intertwingle. Uh, for about the next decade, the German-speaking liberals, in inverted commas, were the uh, most important of about 40, 40 or so political groups, a few of which I shall mention, in the Austrian parliament, that's in uh, Vienna, consciously dominating the non-German groups. By liberal, they meant, we'll sort of let you live your own way inside fairly strict confines, but we're not revolutionary in any sense, and we, we're not consciously looking backwards, we're, we're trying to be up to date, but it's not liberal as, as we in this room would understand liberal, but it was the strongest strand of political thought for a long time. Okay, so we get to 1868. Baron Beust tried getting an agreement with um, UK and France about treatment of people in the East. He thought, as foreign minister, that if he could get the Brits and the French on side, he'd get a bit of a stronger arm to look after all these naughty Slav persons. Didn't come to anything. Prussia didn't like it. Riots. Riots in Prague about Czech independence. Riots. Quite large, quite expensive. But oddly, the Croatians were felt to be the most difficult. They were just kept underneath the rioting stage, but they were a force to be reckoned with. They were furious. They wanted to look out for themselves. Bohemian independence was another problem. That's only just recently been solved, if you think about it. Czech and Slovak having the velvet separation. That's only a recent thing. Last 20-ish years, isn't it? Somewhere around there. Strauss's Blue Danube. Nice, nice little joke. Had some sugary words added to it. Uh, telling Vienna not to get too upset about the impossible ethnic mess they were in. Drum lasst uns einig sein, schließt Brüder fest den Rhein. Let's be one. Come on, brothers, let's put our ranks close together. It was a, you know, a sick joke by some outside observer, because that was the very last thing Austria and Hungaria could do. They were all at each other's throats and in words, if not else. 1869 saw a trade agreement with the UK. It was mainly about textiles. Austro-Hungary was never very good at um, industrial output, although the Czechs did a fair job later on. Anyway, that was mainly about textiles. 1870 was interesting in that the Czechs started demanding the same treatment as the Hungarians. They said, you've got, you've got a group of people who are allowed to speak German and a group of people who are allowed to speak Magyar, 
what about us Czech lots? We've been here at least as long as you. We've got good universities, we're well educated, we're quite clever. We make the best arms uh, available, sell them all over the world. We're, we're a good lot. Why can't we have Czech independence? No, no, says Mr. Archduke. Can't have any of this federal breakup stuff. Too difficult. Once it starts, it'll, it'll run until I've got 30 autonomous regions, and then I won't know which way's up. So that came to nothing. They suggested the, the triple crown, in other words. Austria, Czechoslovakia, Hungary. Didn't happen. It raised resentment of the Czechs against Vienna. What a surprise. Poland threw up some nasty demonstrations. And as a sop, just a part of Krakow University was allowed to teach in Polish. That's, you know, that's, that's government. A part of one of your universities, which has been there longer than you have, and has higher standards than you, is allowed to teach some of its courses in Polish. That's got to make you crosser, not happier. That's awful. Like, that's like telling Surrey it can, it can use English uh, in English and French lessons, but elsewhere we will use Welsh. It's just pointless. Uh, there were attempts to... Uh, when, when the German states organised themselves under Prussia, we said in 1871, Prussia, you remember, very forceful, very effective. Uh, you couldn't ignore Prussia. Nimmer schießen die Preußen schneller, I remember being told. Attempts to establish Bohemia... Moravia and Silesia, as three separate Lenin. That was defeated, since again, the, neither the parliament nor the emperor could face anything that tasted like autonomous regions. We, just have, we have to have this one block under this one Habsburg family, otherwise it all falls apart. No other thinking is allowed. They're mainly scared that the Czech language would become the equivalent of German, which it could easily have done. There were as many Czechs as Germans, just about. But he wouldn't. He wouldn't Emperor would never speak of anything that looked like Swiss cantons. Couldn't, couldn't bear the thought. 1873 was a huge financial crash, absolutely enormous. Terrifyingly flat broke. Basically, there were too many Viennese bank loans chasing too few sensible enterprises. So there's too much fake money chasing too bad activities. And it collapsed. And this is the beginning of serious... Anti-Semitism. I don't know where anti-Semitism started, probably 700 BC, but you know, locally in Europe, the Russians were good at it, the Poles were good at it, but now Vienna never goes back from being anti-Semitic. It just says the Jews own everything, they're exporters of capital, they've got all our damned banks, we're going to hate them with a passion. The Poles want sort of, some sort of autonomy for Galicia in returning to promise not to go for anything more federalist than that. 1873 to 1884, with a few gaps for reasons that needn't bother us, there was a three emperors league. So Germany, Austria and Russia agreed not to attack Turkey. Each could have benefited from thumping Turkey because they would have won for their empires some of these assorted loose Slavs who were sick to death of their local rulers. Those three emperors agreed not to do it. It was upset by Russia in 1884 and went away as an idea. Uh, Russia had to upset it because of its troubles in Bulgaria, the Russian bit of Bulgaria. It had lots of uh, Slav uprisings there, so it had to leave this uh, agreement. And in fact, after 1884, Austria and Russia never again agreed a formal treaty. That's something important to remember when you get to 1914 and thinking about the outbreak of war. After 1884... 
Russia and Austria never made a formal peace agreement or any other kind of agreement ever again. Someone did an economic survey about then, between the 1870s and 1913, the Austro-Hungarian economy grew at about 5% in total, much like France, well behind Germany and, and Britain. Uh, the banks were able to loan only short term. They hadn't the courage to do anything long term, anything large by way of investment. The uh, railways, for example, when they came, were the gift of the Rothschild banking family, which must have hurt like mad. So lending short term to only well-established companies. That's another way of leaving the Slavs in uh, pretty humble agrarian conditions. So they're not going to like you. Every, every time you look, the Slavs have got another kick in the face. They're, they've got another reason for being rotten. Uh, 1875 saw a thing called the Schönbrunn Convention. Germany agreed not to allow Russia to snatch any of the Serb lands in the Ottoman Empire. That was useful because at least <coughs> Vienna knew that Germany would prevent uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina being nicked by Russia. So it's something. It's something. And the, the Ottomans were eventually driven out of Bosnia altogether, except they left many peasant farmers under uh, Muslim landlords, and that wasn't liked much. The Budapest-Bucharest railway was opened, mainly to keep Romania out of Turkish influence, not for the population's benefit, but for the master's benefit. If I link Budapest with Bucharest, I can move my troops quickly, so... Turkey won't snatch bits of Romania. That was the thinking. Preserving the status quo. Treaty of Berlin in 1878. European powers formally gave Bosnia-Herzegovina to Austria. Uh, it was to diminish Russian influence in the Balkans and to reduce the chances of a greater Serbia. Uh, the Serbs were, well, as they are today, capable, gifted people, think their own thoughts. Uh, want to run themselves. In these days, they were split between assorted empires which didn't make sense. So they were quite likely to, to cut up rough if you didn't, if you didn't help. And the German-speaking liberals were very upset since there were now more Slavs in their, in their total state and they were already in trouble with the number of Slavs they'd got. And the liberals now were down to 140 of the 300 seats in the Vienna Parliament. I'll mention some of the other parties when I have to, but it's not very illustrative to talk about all the political uh, machinations that were going on. So the large per Serb population was very angry. What a surprise. Uh, following centuries of uh, oppression. And to help matters, to cheer people up, the Austrian army marched into Bosnia-Herzegovina. Now that's going to help, isn't it? That's like us walking into Scotland with all our uh, flags waving and trumpets blowing. That's really going to help. Sorry to be cynical, but I don't know the other way of uh, looking at this mess. You, know. you, can't, you, can, you can either make a joke or cry. And I choose somewhere at the cynical end of making a joke. There's, there's no other way to survive this nonsense. 1879 was the dual alliance, not the triple alliance yet. Um, a defence treaty with Germany, again against possible Russian attack. So this time it's not just Germany promising to look after Bosnia Herzegovina, it's Germany promising to help Austria if anybody hit them at all with anything. Germany's thinking of Russia. Russia's not far away. France is building railways so that Russia can move its armies. Prussia wants to say military top dog in the local area. British Empire, of course, is, is still far more important, far more powerful. But on the mainland, 
Germany's doing very well nicely, thank you. France is helping Russia to catch up and everybody's scared. This could turn into something bloody. Last thing we want in war. Ministry of Defence, in case you hadn't noticed, is full of pacifists and saboteurs, which I was a prime example. If I could make it three years longer and cost ten times as much, I did. <laughs> Every day. I can say that now, quarter of a century since I left. Emperor called for a new parliament based on German, Czech and Polish conservatives and sidelining the old German Liberal Party. That's, that's nearly modernising. He's, he's chosen three top uh, nationals and got them to form the parliament. The Czechs agreed to turn up for parliament in exchange for autonomy in language and education. So at last, the Czechs were allowed to speak in Czech in their schools and have school books in Czech. I mean, what if we did that to the Scots? You know, you're not allowed, when, when the haggis arrives, you're not allowed to call it Puddin, Queen of the Puddins. Yeah, bagpipes are out. And, you, know, we would, you couldn't get away with anything like that these days. We just would not get away with it. Mahler, Gustav Mahler, several of you will know, beautiful stuff. It's like English cricket. It's, it's not so much music as watching time stand still. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, romantic with a superb grasp of form. If you haven't heard Das Lied von der Erde, where he, he sets six Chinese poems about life, then you should. Gustav Mahler, good guy. Anyway, he and others that you won't have heard of, because I haven't, began a cultural movement in search of something beyond the bankruptcy of the Habsburg rule. Uh, they provoked, promoted Wagnerian ideas mainly, that folk emotions are okay, that neat top-down formal government was not the answer to everything, that you could actually feel for yourself sort of bottom-up. You could stand in the street and feel Wagnerian folklore belonging thoughts and make something of it. You know, you could have a picnic with the English. It was allowed. You, you, didn't, have to have a, you didn't have to have a Latvian and a Portuguese at, at every picnic. You could have one with the English. That was, that was the, the feeling of, of Marr and his mates. Because the government was rubbish. The government was never going to do anything useful. They might as well do that. 1870s to 1880s, roughly speaking, the Empire's major foreign policy topic Again and again and again, thousands of words, thousands of pages I could have read you, thousands of paragraphs from learned people. It was about resisting Russia's encouragement of Slav populations wanting home rule in the Balkans. So there's all those people in the Balkans leaking out of a defunct Turkey and Slavs are brothers to Russians. As far as, the Russian, as, far as Moscow is concerned, they are brother Slavs uh, and we should be looking after them. And nothing to do with the Germans, and nothing to do with the Hungarians, they belong to us, Mother Russia. And that was the main problem for a good ten years. Lots of heated disputes about budgets, contributions, customs, tariffs, land control. Czech calls for independence didn't stop just because Prague University had a bit of freedom. They were loud and frequent. They knew Bohemia was the empire's best modern industrial region. Uh, and the Austrian engineering undertakings were very far behind. I mean, um, Bohemian industry was good. It, it wasn't up to German or British standards, but compared with the rest of Austro-Hungary, it, uh, it was outstanding. OK, we got a new minister in 1881, new foreign minister, Count Kalocci. He said Austria needed more influence in Serbia, which threatened Vienna all along the Danube 
and in all the lands in the south, which is true, it did. So he crept up to the king of Serbia and made a secret pact. The king of Serbia, as an individual, made a pact with the foreign minister of Austria to help contain Slav, Slav agitation near uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina and agreed that he wouldn't sign treaties with he, the king of, of uh, Serbia, would not sign treaties with any other nation without discussing it with Vienna and getting Viennese agreement to it. Now that was done by the king. Um, his population would never have accepted that. There's no way he would have gone that past the Serb government or the Serbian population. It was him trying to uh, quiet things down in a secretive fashion. Much like we had a secret treaty with Belgium, if you remember. Nobody knew of it. We had a secret treaty because to keep Germany in place, stop it getting France again, uh, we could be in Belgium and stop them going around that corner. What a... <laughs> That's got to work, isn't it? Telephone exchanges started to be opened. Zagreb was the first. Not because it was the richest or the cleverest, but because it was fairly small. You could do Zagreb. And then Budapest, and then Vienna, which was the largest. And then telephone exchanges sort of spread. Uh, we now have a pan-German party. Fiercely anti-Semitic, called them exporters of capital. <laughs> it wanted social reform, didn't get any. It was anti-monarchy, couldn't do anything about that. Scared by pan-Slavism, which was growing as a movement. And it wanted the German bits of Austria to rejoin Germany. Well, Germany didn't want the German bits of Austria. And the, the Habsburg dynasty wasn't going to let the German bits of Austria wander off. He'd have nothing left. So that was a busted flush. We now replace the dual alliance with the triple alliance. We're now getting to World War I terminology. The triple alliance of Austria, Italy and Germany. With an eye on Russian expansion again. You remember it was uh, opposed in World War I by the Triple Entente, which was Britain, France and Russia. Property qualification for voting was lowered. So the lower middle class in cities and uh, several country farmers got the vote. And the next election showed a marked swing to the right. A bit odd, that. You'd, you'd expect status quo were a bit more socialist, but no, swung to the right. Small government, firm leadership. Brief period of martial law in Austria in 1884 to contain anarchists. There were many Serbs. Always Serbs wandering about, throwing things and offering to stab people. You would have thought the Archduke would remember some of this, but he was too busy hunting. He, he shot a hurry, 270,000 animals. Africa, India and Europe. The Crown Prince, France, thing. What a plonker. <laughs> uh, they moved by the various anti-Semitic and anti-monarchy groups to nationalise the railways. That got nowhere. You can't nationalise railways, which the Emperor has allowed to happen, so that he didn't move his troops to trouble spots. So forget that as a socialist idea. That's not going to work. Military entente with Italy and Britain to keep Russia out of the Balkans. Again, if Austria makes a pact with anybody, it's to keep the Russians out of the Balkans, because we're in trouble enough with the Serbs. Remember, the Germans and the Slavs have loathed each other for a well-documented thousand years. They have nothing nice to say to each other. We had a Social Democrat Party in 1889. It doesn't mean what it says. It's not what it says on the tin. It was opposed to capitalism. Uh, oh, really, um, including votes for property owners only. Didn't get far. Now, the great emperor, bless his, bless his woolly 
socks underneath his army boots. He should have brown boots in officer class. Officer class has brown boots. Please note, black boots are for yobs. Persons of sergeant shoot that man. They're, they're black boots. I'm, I'm, I'm brown boots. You know. I told the sergeant. He should have brown boots. Anyway, I, I drift off. Gradually, there's a, well, what can you say? He's got two sons. The oldest one, who's the heir apparent, goes and commits suicide with his lover. Nobody can really give you a critical description of why that happened. I expect he was just sick of life. You know, if, if I was sitting in a castle in Vienna trying to run this lot, I'd be sick of life. You know, you, when I'm dead, boy, all this will be yours. Gee, thanks. You know, I, I'd probably top myself. Well, not really, but I'd do something else. I'd take up missionary work in Equiano land or something. Uh, so now, the wonderful Franz Joseph, number two child, who's not groomed for it, a bit like Bashar al-Assad in uh, Syria, not prepared for it, should be doing something else, a bit like our own King uh, George VI, not prepared for it, should have been doing something else. He's now heir to the throne, which is going to be a lot of fun all around, because all he knows about is shooting pigs and boar and deer, that's, that's his forte, government, mm, my dad does that. Another light spot, Wittgenstein, Jew, what a surprise, right? Anyway, Jews in Vienna were bright persons, and Wittgenstein, you may have heard of, an absolutely ace logician, cleared away masses of stuff. Some of his statements are still worth remembering. What can be said at all can be said clearly. In other words, if you've, if you've found a fact or a process or anything that's genuine, you'll be able to describe it in very simple language to a child of ten. It doesn't need complication. It's a sort of verbal Occam's razor. And what we cannot talk about, we must leave to silence. So truth, beauty, God, you know, all that rhubarb, you just don't mention because you can't do anything with it. But, you know, carbon and hydrogen interacting, that we can do. And if you're seven, I can show you why it behaves that way. It's lawful. That's what Wittgenstein said. We clear off all you other persons, writing reams and reams and reams. Remember the Gilbert and Sullivan line, sent to listen to sermons by mystical Germans who preached from ten till four. A lot of philosophy was like that. And Wittgenstein says, you don't need it. You know, if, if there's anything useful and observable, you can say it in plain language to a kid, and they'll remember. He also said, well, it's a sort of consequence, really. It's a logical consequence. Philosophy aims at the logical clarification of thinking. Philosophy is not a body of knowledge or a body of doctrine. Philosophy is an activity. It's about clearing up the way you think. It seems all so obvious to us now, but given 1880s philosophers in France, and, oh, you should read the French. I mean, the Germans were bad enough, but the French probably spoke from 10 till 7. <coughs> God! <laughs> The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group.